Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have to think pessimistically. The reason things worked is because further upstream, I and Dave were worried about whether it was going to work or not. And we corrected it or we made it good. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with comedian Neil Brennan. He's a comedy writer and co-creator of The Chappelle Show. We're going to talk about the comedy writing process and how it mirrors real life, a mindset to get a more realistic handle on the potential outcome of a given project or situation, and help you prepare and plan for the worst, and some tips on getting happy from a guy who's tried everything and why achievement can't be a substitute for happiness. Enjoy this episode with Neil Brennan. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we discuss concepts like reading body language and having charismatic nonverbal communication. We also talk about the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, social engineering, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. Check that out at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox or in our iPhone app at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone. Also at theartofcharm.com, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC. Enjoy this episode with Neil Brennan. My friend recommended three mics on Netflix, and he's like, have you heard of this Neil Brennan guy? Of course, I don't know anybody's names that I'm yeah. not familiar with. And so I turn it on, and I'm like, all right. And the first thing I see is you're holding these note cards yeah, on the like, mic. this motherfucker, yeah. That my first thought was, what the hell? You've got to have this memorized already. Yeah. Like, what's the problem? So what was that all about? Oh, know. why did I do notes? Because yeah. if I didn't do notes on that mic, it wouldn't have been different enough from the other mic. Oh, I see. So it has to be like... I just needed to differentiate it. Like a different energy type yeah. deal? Gotcha. Okay, cool. Because I, I felt like, where's this like weird crutch coming from? It's like when yeah. someone gives a keynote, but they have their notes on their phone. You're like, what are you doing? I've seen you do this a hundred times. Yeah. And most comedy really is the same a lot. I mean, the delivery is pretty similar, except for the person's personality is different. Like you got yeah. your Gabriel Iglesias or whatever yeah. type guys. But this is a lot different. The three mics format is different. Can you tell us a little bit about like what that is? Uh, it's basically, so there's three mics on stage, like spaced out, equidistant from each other. So I just alternate mics basically three times. One's for one-liners. One I just do like three or four one-liners. One is for stand-up, like conventional stand-up. And then one mic is for emotional stories. And then I just kind of go, I do 10 minutes of stand-up or 12 minutes of stand-up. Then I do eight minutes of stories. Then I do two minutes of one-liners. And then I just repeat. Why the break in format from just like, all right, I have funny stuff. I'm going to go up and deliver it. There's so many hours now. There's yeah, so many true. stand-up hours. Like, it's really, really difficult to stand out. And the people that do stand out usually stand out because they have their own TV show. Or they did a roast, or they did something that was like, sort of got them a lot of attention. Then people go, oh, you just stand up, I'll watch it. So I knew I didn't have a TV show. And there was stuff I wanted to talk about that I knew people found interesting. And I wanted to talk about it on stage. And I always had that idea, so I figured it out. How do you know someone's going to find that stuff? Or how do you even hypothesize someone's going to find that stuff interesting? Because I've talked about it on podcasts and everyone says that's really. Oh, that's the good stuff. Yeah. Well, not like that's not the good stuff. Comedians have sort of led the movement of being revealing off stage, so to speak, on podcasts mostly. And I would watch my friends like do stuff. And if they ever got upset or choked up, I was always like, that's so much more interesting to me than just another person doing stand up, giving like a glib 
well thought out recital of their material that they've rehearsed. Yeah, yeah. Times. Like it's their look. Stand up is the best. Like it's better than any movie to me. It's better than a TV show. It's the best. But there's times where it's like, a, I don't want to watch you for an hour. Sort of one note. B, great stand ups rare. So I just wanted to do a different thing. Uh, yeah, and done. I, when I saw it, I thought like, why do people recommend this one liners with the note cards? Like, who is this guy? And then I was like, I don't care what TV show he wrote that I liked before. Like, this doesn't make yeah. sense. What did this guy contribute? By the way, the one liners took 40 seconds. So all this happened yeah, yeah. in 40 seconds. You had this deep of a spin out. You like, know, I, fuck this guy. I watched it like three times. And yeah, I probably did because when somebody recommends something, I'm like, uh -huh. am I going to sit down and watch this for yeah. an hour? And you know, I thought your shtick maybe was, I'm going to pretend I'm really putsy in front of the mic and that I don't have good delivery right. or something. And I was like, oh, wait, actually, these are these are funny. And then you yeah. went into some deeper stuff. And I thought, OK, oh, that part wasn't supposed to be totally funny. I see what you're doing here. Right. I didn't read the premise of three mics before yeah, I yeah. watched it. I just turned on. I just thought, all right, I yeah, yeah. get that for the yeah. same reason somebody calls it fluffy. Right. right. Like whatever. There's going to be a three mics joke at the end. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about growing up in Philadelphia, Irish Catholic. As, uh, as my friend Caleb Bacon says, your family was a little dysfunctional, so dysfunctional that it produced two stand-up comics, that's not just correct. one. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, that is, that's really saying something. Highly unusual uh, situation. Yeah. Were you funny when you were younger, like when you were yeah. a kid? I was always pretty funny. I was like, you know, cute. I was the youngest, so it was like I was sort of precocious and I was funny. Yeah. Was there a time where you realized like, I can do this stand-up thing, this funny thing, like I got this, I should do this? There was no, like, moment, per se. My brother was a comedian when I was in high school. I was like, oh, okay. Like, so I knew I got to spend time when I was in high school with, like, David Tell and Ray Romano and guys like that. So that were friends with my brother. It was before they were famous, but I knew, like, I got to see them do stand-up. They were great. I got to hang at a comedy club, so I just sort of wanted to do it. And then I, I was funny around my friends. Did you ever think, like, I'm funnier than my brother? I should probably get into this. No, I no. never, no, truly will not play that game because I know that there's just as many people saying to him, you're funnier than Neil. So it's like, I'm, yeah. I'm just not even. It's always a matter of taste. Yeah. It doesn't do any good. Yeah. There's nothing there. I'm not trying to bait you into no, like, no, no. dissing yeah, your brother either. I just figured like some comics, they go, well, you know, I saw other people doing it and I just thought that timing thing, like I can do that. I can mimic that. Or I get the same yeah. reaction among my friends or among strangers, which is more yeah. important, obviously than your friends. So he got you a job working the door at a club. And was it Boston? Or yeah, NYC? It, was it was in New York, but it was called the Boston Comedy Club. Okay. That's a little confusing. Yeah, because they wanted to make sure no one went. <laughs> but yeah, it was Boston Comedy Club. And yeah, so I was going to NYU for film school and working the door at the comedy club. And then eventually I was like, I liked the comedy club more than I like film school. I'm more nocturnal. I figured like, let me just work there and did. And it was, you know, like I said, Patel, Romano, John Stewart. Yeah. Chappelle, a lot of really great comic, Louis C.K. before he was famous. So all these people before they were famous, these were like kindred spirits, way more than film students. Actually, how did you start and keep those relationships? I mean, you see the guys there all the time, but there's a lot of people that work in comedy clubs that don't throw jokes at the comics, that don't try to create relationships, that don't end up being or staying friends with these guys. Oh, yeah, I, that's a good question. I certainly was like, I felt an affinity for them. I would strike up conversations with them. I would, you just said I would pitch them jokes. I didn't pitch a ton of people jokes, but Jay Moore, like we were roommates. He did a joke of mine. Chappelle did a joke. I was useful in a way, like to them. Me and Chappelle were like same age. Like we got along really well. So I didn't necessarily see it as networking per se. I guess it was networking, but I didn't think of it that way. Sure. I think most people who are good at networking and relationship development don't think of it as networking because the people that think of it as networking are... It's too obvious. They're like, hey, buddy. Hey, can I give you a card? And yeah. it's like, no. I, Let me know when you need a financial manager. Yeah. I have people often saying like, hey, I'm an amateur comedian. Can I send you a link for my... It sent me a link. Can you watch my five minutes? And I was like, no, thank you. People see me or somebody doing better than them in showbiz or doing well as an opportunity. And it's like, once you feel like an opportunity, you're going to shut off. That's an interesting point that I hadn't really thought of. People send me their stuff all the time. Yeah. Like, hey, can you read my book? And I'm yeah. like, one, no. And two, even if I did, I don't know what useful input I'm yeah. going to have because I do my thing totally different than you should do yours. Yeah. Or even like, listen to an episode of my podcast. It's only half an hour long. Or even if it's only like 10 minutes long. Yeah. My feedback would be like, yeah, talk closer to the mic or I don't know. If you're good, it'll get to me. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're good at something, somebody will tell me 
like, did you see this thing or whatever? Like, you don't want to jump the gun. People send me scripts, whatever. I have scripts that are written by professionals that they want me to do that I don't read. Right. That I just don't have time or interest. So if someone says, I'm an amateur, read this. It's like, dude, okay, this is your one opportunity. You want to waste it on this? Like, you sure you're not going to get any better? Like, because guess what? If I don't like this, I'm not reading anything else you ever send me. For the for your entire life. For the rest of your life until you die. No, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I do you know, know what you mean. You need to be smart about, you know, people that make online videos. It's like, hey, you don't have to put them all on YouTube. Make five of them, show them to your friends, and the best one put on YouTube. Oh, good point. Whereas right. everyone's like, I go to my page and do it. It's like, dude, if I watch one and it stinks, I'm not going to keep watching. It's over. Yeah. yeah. I'm saying that as like a guy that people want to see as an opportunity, but that's also the audience's take. Like you were mad at the one-liners. There's three one-liners. I wasn't even mad. I just thought if the remote were closer, I would be like, I'm going to lower the volume, but not turn it off. Actually, if my friend hadn't recommended it, I probably would never have turned it on. I didn't know who you mm-hmm. were. And so I do watch some comedy, yeah, but I yeah. like to watch it live. I don't care about Netflix yeah. unless it's like I'll, I'll go and look at Roy Wood Jr. because he's a friend of mine. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, you got a new thing? Yeah. I'm going to support you and I'll watch it. And even if it's not funny, I'll probably still tell you I watched it and I really yeah, enjoyed yeah. it, which it was funny. Yeah. Gabriel, my buddy, goes, look, it's really funny and there's stuff in there that you'll like. And I was like, I assume he's not talking about the first three lines yeah. of your thing, of your special. So I gave it more of a chance. But I think about my show in the same way. My show's obviously not that funny and totally different. I put stuff in there, and if I record something and it just doesn't go that well, I go, I can't put that in my feed. And my tip for new podcasters is, if you don't think, damn, that was good, don't put it in your feed, because even if you're on episode 400, there's people who are gonna go, I'll just check out that show you yeah. recommended. And they're good. that's the first encounter yeah. that they have with you. And they're like, that Jordan guy just tried to be funny for 40 minutes. What a dipshit. I can't believe people like this. Who is this person? Mm-hmm. And you see that in your iTunes reviews. You'll you'll put up something and you're not that proud of it. And like a week later, it's like, this show sucks. Why is everyone recommending it? And you're like, you heard yeah. the episode I did with yeah. that one guy, didn't you? Yeah. Fuck. And it's not worth it. Yeah. And it's not worth doing that to people that you think might become connections later, even if you're not even thinking about that at the time, it might do well to realize that in business or in any craft that you do, you're always communicating, you're always creating a relationship or you're warning people not to do that. There's also the thing that people don't realize is like, there's nothing in it for me. Meaning helping you, I always tell people like, I didn't move to LA to do your shit. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, 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 good point. I didn't think about that. Like I moved out here to do my shit. I didn't move out here to like, and then hopefully somebody will just call me and I moved out here because I have my own goals and my own like ideas that I want to get done. Most people will help you if they think if it's mutual, if there's a mutual benefit to it that worked out for me. It's like Jay took a joke from my notebook. I pitched a joke to Dave. So then when these guys started getting TV opportunities, they were like, well, who can help me? Who writes things that I like? Yeah. Yeah. I've made a lot of money off of helping people for no reason other than the love of the game like other than like my just dave had an idea and i was like hey do this and then and then that snowballs into half baked snowballs into Chappelle show snowballs into everything i've ever done like schumer schumer before schumer had a show she was doing the roast and she asked we were friends she was like can you help me with the roast thing i don't even think i she used anything i pitched and then she gets a show she asked me to direct it then she does a Bud Light campaign with Seth Rogen. And I don't even like those Bud Light, but whatever. So, <laughs> so, but it's on the Super Bowl and it's a big, spectacular thing. So it's like, and I got work with Seth and Evan and I like this guy. No one's going to help you in a way that's not beneficial to them in some way. We call it not keeping score. And we call it giving generously for the obvious reason that you're giving generously. And you're also not expecting anything necessarily in return you're giving generously like, look, I got this thing that maybe you can use. You're not thinking like, if he uses that, I am fucking money, right? You're thinking like, if he uses that, that's cool. And then eventually you're not thinking like, I gave Jay a joke, so where's my comeback? This was like in the 90s. So I knew that Larry David had sort of knew Jerry Seinfeld from the comedy clubs. And then Jerry Seinfeld was like, hey, I've got the sitcom. You want to work on it with me? So I knew that that was a thing that happened. And I wanted to work with Dave. Like, I always felt like we could do good stuff together. But Dave Chappelle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But there was a not even altruism. It was just like, if I think of a joke, I can't not tell someone. 
if I think of a tag for someone's act, like I haven't done it this week, but there's very few weeks that go by that I don't text someone like, hey, when you say that, maybe try saying this. Like, you know, I do it with Chris Rock. I do it with everybody. Does anybody ever get annoyed? Like, uh, thanks for your suggestion, guy who works at the door, but I got I got my shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was a ton of that. Like, Chappelle didn't like it the first time I pitched him, but the joke that I think that I pitched him worked. Oh, so he did try it. Like, eh, why not? All yeah. Right, try it. Like, he knew when I pitched it that it would work. <laughs> but he's annoyed that you thought like, of it? I'm not saying, like, look, there's going to be resistance. Like, there's plenty of people who don't, who I'll pitch a joke and then they won't use it. And I'm like, fucking idiot. Like, dude, I'm telling you that'll work. But people, again, people didn't move out here to do my shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah which I get. So I don't like begrudge them. I just stop pitching them. You're cut off. No more jokes for you. I just go like, okay, they're never going to take my stuff. So yeah. why? Why waste your time? Yeah. Yeah. And the brain power. So are you thinking of jokes for specific people in their act? Or are you like, I have this generally good thing? Oh, no, no, no. If I have a generally good thing, I'll do it myself. But if I'm watching someone's act, there's a like a hole or they say something and they could say more. I will like text them like, hey, you might want to say this. That's a, a unique skill set. I, I don't know how many people do that for other people or are even able to do it for other people. Have uh, you seen that a lot? Is that I mean, a that's comment? kind of what being a comedy writer is. Just writing stuff for other people all the time? Well, no, not unsolicited. But when you write on a TV show or, yeah, if you write on a TV show or you write movies or whatever, the, your job is they you work a scene and then you everybody punches it up. Sure. I can see that. It feels like if I'm working on your show with you and Dave Chappelle, I'm studying all your stuff and your voice and I'm watching it over and over and you're kind of doing that, but it's automatically happening in your head. I don't try to like immerse myself. It's like, I, you know, I can write for Chris because I can write for Chris Rock because I'm a fan of his. Right. So I know his subjects. I know what he likes to talk about. I know how he likes to talk about it. So it's not like, think like Chris, what would Chris right. say? It's just, it is automatic. So it would be theoretically really hard for you if you're like, hey, look, we're hiring Neil uh, Brennan to write for you, Jordan. And you're like, this guy, I don't know this guy. I don't know what he does. I feel like the art of charm is some sort of weird thing. I want to get out of here ASAP. I don't want to, I don't know how to write for this guy. And it's like, you're getting a million dollars a week. And you're like, oh God, it's going to be a lot harder, right? If the person doesn't have a voice, it's hard. But if the person doesn't have like a clear comedy voice, then it's harder, but it's not impossible. It's not as easy. It doesn't flow. Well, yeah, it's like it doesn't suggest. It's like when, you know, somebody hosts SNL who's like, you know, an actress or something. And they're all like, all the writers are like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like what? Like, it's, yeah. you know, it's easy when it's Melissa McCarthy or or Larry David or people that have a clear comedy voice. But if it's like some chick who just did an action movie and is hot. It's like, Jesus Christ. So then you're just yeah, I making, bet. you're just doing jokes because they're hot, but it's not because they have a clear comedic force. I think the advantage there is people, especially guys, will laugh at anything a beautiful woman says generally if the intent is to be uh, not funny. In com not in, not in comedy? Oh, really? At a bar they might, but not. In, yeah, but I feel like If you're watching SNL. SNL, you can't have sex with. Margot Robbie. I'm signing off on that one. Then. Laughing, you're laughing at your house. She's not going to sleep with you because of that. It's harder for if someone's super good looking, people are predisposed to not laugh. Actually, women. That's interesting. In stand up, in, in, stand -up. in bars, again, guys will put up with anything. Yeah. I just figured Saturday Night Live, most of the people watching are just dudes like me who are like, this better be funny tonight. No, it is. It's all defense. So yeah, it's all just like what <laughs> crossed arms and like predisposed to not like it. So if they're hot, you're even more like, fuck you, you think you're funny? Oh, yeah. You can't be funny and hot. Yeah, can, exactly. Can you see the sign? I'm not giving you that. Yeah. Yeah, I already feel insecure around you. I'm not going to let you be funny, yeah, too. exactly. Get out of here. You grew up, you had kind of a rough childhood, and uh, your dad was a little bit hard on you from the sound of it, or a lot hard on you from the sound mm -hmm. of it. How does that kind of thing alter the way that you develop emotionally. And I don't mean like from a therapist perspective here, but in terms of expression of feelings and stuff like that, which you kind of have to do a lot of in comedy, maybe. How does it alter that? How does it get in there and mix up? I mean, I don't know any too many comedians that are like extremely happy as people. Yeah, I, I kind of noticed that. And so, I, I don't know why that is. Uh, because part of it is like comedy requires brutal clarity. And you are not especially happy. You see things in a brutally clear way. Couldn't be less sentimental. You see the world in an unsentimental way and you can see things clearly. And then you so you take like a brutal, honest truth 
and then you basically spiff it up and put a tuxedo and a funny hat on it and you've got comedy it's <laughs> to begin with you start from something like brutal and then you sort of charm it up lennon and mccartney jagger and richards watson and crick aj and johnny what about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business well that's you and shopify that's right johnny shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. People are right now, they're yelling at their iPhone or whatever they're using to play this. And they're like, the jokes make up for the sadness. And it's like, that's kind of the easy, obvious, there's more to it than that. Like like you just mentioned, you have that brutal sense of clarity. And they even say, they being like scientific American mind, for example, like depressed people have a more accurate outlook on yeah. reality. Yeah, and that it's good to have depressed people in a work group. I've actually said that at times. I've gone like, hey, can we look at this pessimistically? Really? Yeah, because I think you're more prone to make mistakes if you assume things are going to go well. Like, I think the thing yeah. with, it's like Jerry Seinfeld has said about stand-up, bad audiences make you edit and good audiences make you expand. So it's like, let's assume this isn't going to work. Why? What are the potential pitfalls for whatever this idea is? And then can we mediate that before we even start? Like, when I'm writing comedy, I can't assume, like, they're going to be on board for this. Then I'm going to say that. Like, I have to assume that the audience is going to drive a hard bargain. 
Right, you have to assume that they're like me and they're looking at those note cards and they're like... Like, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. So, which is why I only do a few one-liners up front. But I know, like, a friend of mine did a special and he put a great joke and I said, is that your closer? And he's like, no, I put it third. And I was like, why? And he's like, because people will turn it off. And I think that's a good way to look at things. Because I've actually imparted that wisdom to other people and they go, no, they won't turn me off. Really? So you're the (laughs) exception to human nature. It must be nice. I think there's something to pessimism. It can fuck your life up, but I think it's a decent thing to be mindful of. If we're trying to apply this at home, for example, outside of comedy writing, Do you think, how does that exercise, if you will, work? Is it just like, let's assume that the first thing we do just bombs and the second thing we do also doesn't work. Is that the, is that kind of? Yeah, I do that in everything because I direct stuff sometimes. Like I said, like I direct commercials and I direct TV shows and stuff. And and directing is all about having an offensive plan and a defensive plan. Like, so I'll have a shot that I want, like, and then it'll be a one-er and we'll just, it'll be no edits and da-da-da-da. I'm like, well, but also I need to get, shots in case that doesn't work i need to get like sort of static defensive coverage in case this big idea doesn't work and with stand-up comedy writing or whatever it's just looking at things critically and like what if it doesn't work you need to have a backup plan whenever people are like i have there is no plan b i'm like oh you're an idiot (laughs) yeah you're screwed this has to work okay well then you're fucking yourself like you have to have a defensive plan. It's like in stand-up. People always said, like, it was fun to watch Johnny Carson bomb. Johnny Carson, the old host of The Tonight Show, like, when he bombed, it was as funny as when he killed because his bomb, he would, like, fidget and look off to the side, and it was funny to watch. So Dave Chappelle has said, like, you can tell how funny someone is by how they bomb. So it's like, do you choke or do you realize, like, well, this isn't going well? And then you're funny and you're honest and your backup plan is your sort of saver. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that before. Once I was at the the Laugh Factory, the comedy store, I can't remember. I was with my parents sitting at a table. They were seated kind of away from me yeah. uh, because they wanted to see and not crane their necks. And the guy who was at one of those open mic kind of short set deals, yeah. first guy doing crowd work, the whole audience was like, oh, why are you sitting with these two old people? Oh, they're my parents. And then he kind of played with us for a little bit. The next guy comes up and does this like really raunchy masturbation joke. Uh-huh. And he points at me and he's like, this guy. And he just goes to town. The whole audience is kind of quiet yeah. because they, they know, know I'm with parents my parents. Yeah. And, and he goes, what the hell happened here? That usually just crushes it. And then he goes, wait, shit, are those your parents? Oh my God, I'm so, and he made a big deal out of that. And yeah. it was in everybody, the tension had built up so yeah. high at that point that the whole room just exploded in laughter. And yeah. I thought he could have blown that really easily by being like, oh, uh, and then just moved on to the next thing. When I pitch movies or pitch TV shows or whatever, and it's not going well, I will literally say that. Like, well, this isn't going good. (laughs) And I think if you say it in a confident way, it makes, even though you're still going to bomb, you're bombing, you're bombing less. Yeah. If you just say like, oh, this isn't going well. If you do it in a sweaty way, if you do it in a needy way, it can backfire. But there have been times where I've been pitching movies and I've said to the person that I was pitching to that we were bombing with, I was like, all right, well, we're going to come back in a year and pitch another one. I think if you're pitching or meeting people or whatever or trying to sell yourself in some way, I think if you say, like, look, I can see you don't like it. I understand. I'll come (laughs) back. Like, if you're, instead of just this sweaty thing of, like, not acknowledging what's happening, I think that can make it way worse. It's like a bad shark tank. You ever watch that show? Yeah, they're They're just getting killed and you're like... You just, you suck through your teeth because you're yeah, like, this guy. you want the person to be like, all right, this isn't working. I'm rescinding my offer. Yeah. yeah. Or, or just like, I'm just going to show you the product because I'm blowing it. Like, or right not, now. I'm not even going to show you the product. This is going so badly. going to walk back out there. I would there. love that. If someone on Shark Tank was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. This is over. <laughs> I don't know if that would make air, but it would be an awesome episode of Shark It'd Tank. It'd be hilarious. Sure. You wrote Half-Baked. Mm-hmm. That movie, speaking of pitching movies, I don't remember why that movie didn't do well because when I watched it. Because it opened against Titanic, Goldeneye, and Goodwill Hunting. That'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. But I watched that movie, I don't know, 50 times, and I haven't watched the other ones 50 times combined because I don't even know. I wasn't like a pot smoker or anything like that yeah. when I was in high school or college or whenever that came out. It just turned into this weird 
is cult classic the right term? Like it was this underground college. That's the exact right term. Like probably did a million times better on DVD than it did in theaters. Almost to the number a million times better. When you're doing Chappelle's show, did you decide, look, I want to be performing instead of only writing? I mean, how no, did the transition I never, go? that's the thing. Like, I was never watching Dave being like, I should be Rick James. <laughs> He's an amazing performer. I was never jealous or envious of the attention he got. Like, I was happy with the amount of attention I was getting. Like, more than anything, it came about because when the show ended, it was like, oh, well, I'm at the whims of somebody else here. Yeah. I need to be more self-determining and do something where... And I'd been doing stand-up a bit, so I was like, let me focus more on that. When you're writing a show like that that's doing so freaking well, you mentioned, well, we got to look at things pessimistically and figure out if they maybe aren't going to work. Is there ever a moment when you're writing something like that and you go, it's definitely going to work. This is Chappelle's show. We're killing it. Or did you always kind of go, well, you know? Yeah, there was never, I mean, I was thinking pessimist. You have to think pessimistically. The reason things worked is because further upstream, I and Dave were worried about whether it was going to work or not. And we corrected it or we made it good because we needed a joke. Like we would go, we need a joke here. We can't move on until we have a joke here. Like Chappelle hosted SNL a couple months ago and I worked on it with him and and it was like there was a sketch we did and I was like, we don't have an ending. And he was getting mad at me. I'm like, dude, you can get mad at me all you want. We don't have an ending. Then we figured it out. But it came from me saying we don't have an ending and him going, I think we do. And me going, no, I don't think we do. You know, as much as I was a pain in his ass, I was correct. And that happened. And there were plenty of times where he vice versa, like where he'd say, I don't think we have a joke here. I don't think we have an ending. And I'd be like, "Uh." if someone criticizes something, even if you don't agree with them, I think it's worth maybe coming up with a solution. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. because. Even if they're wrong, worst case is you worked out this non-existent yeah, problem. It's like when people are like, I like this joke. It's like, okay, I don't. Take 40, how long did it take you to think of the joke? A split second, take another two minutes and try to beat it. It becomes this ego thing and it becomes this defensiveness thing. Like, well, no, that works and, da, 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 and I like it. I bet you do like it. You thought of it. I bet yeah. you like it. Me and a buddy of mine used to be the head writer of Silent Live would say that people go like, we like that. And he's like, oh, I know you do. <laughs> the audience didn't like it. And we work for the audience. Uh, yeah. So you need to come up with a better joke here or whatever. So like you said, if you try to come up with a solution and you can't, then you've done your due diligence and you can sell, do whatever you're doing with a clear head. But the good news is you may think of a way better joke. Yeah, it's supposed- or way better anything. Like a lot of what experience is, in my case, it's comedy. Like it's like seeing patterns and remembering like, oh, this reminds me of that. And that didn't go well. So how can I work against that? That's what wisdom is. That's what experience is. It's like we may be making that mistake. How do we avoid making that mistake? How clear is that image of like the pattern in your head? For example, are you just going, I feel like this doesn't work? Or are you like, no, last time we tried this and this and this, and that followed this pattern and it didn't work? You know, how crystal it's pretty, is it? It's very clear. Like really? that's what experience is. Like working on Tired Live a bit this year, I hung out with Lorne Michaels a bunch, and he's he's been a comedy writer for like 50 years and wrote for shows that you've never heard of sure. literally 50 years ago. And he'll talk about a sketch at Saturday Live, they read 50 sketches a week. Jeez. So, okay, so that's 50 sketches a week, 25 times a year for 43 years. So he'll talk <laughs> about sketches and go, yeah, I've seen that sketch 10 times. I've written myself twice. And he's not talking about that literal sketch. Right, he's talking about patterns. that pattern of sketch, that format, that formula, whatever you want to call it. So a lot of it is just seeing a pattern and going. Like when we were at Saturday Live, the week Dave hosted, there was a sketch that somebody pitched and it was a funny pitch, but I knew where it was headed. And I was like, I said to Dave, I was like, that's a good idea, but something tells me it's going to be flat when we read it. And sure enough, it was flat when we read it because I knew what the idea was. How do you test stuff like that? Do you have a focused audience in there? Or are you just like in the back of your head, you're like, this is still not funny because mm-hmm. we're rehearsing it and it sucks. You just can tell. Like by being a comedian and being a funny person, you just like, this isn't funny. 
it seems like it would be really easy to start writing comedy for comedians instead of writing comedy for an audience of people who it's just the got same done. thing i mean comedians might not laugh but they'll go it's oh, a good joke <laughs> like that's the thing is you get to the place where you're like ah oh, it's a good joke we all recognize like a good joke when we see it having said that i have a ton of experience a ton of boots on the ground etc i still bomb regularly or do a joke that bombs regularly like I do a new material show usually every Tuesday in Santa Monica and at the West Side Comedy Theater in L.A. And I do jokes every week that don't work. There are things like I think this might work. That's the thing about comedy is this should work, but it's a fickle thing and it's really subtle and it's the highest level of difficulty. And if you can do stand up or do you can pretty much do anything. If you look at like the things that comedians do that actors can't fucking do. How many actors do you know that can write their own show? Because I know 20 comedians that can. Yeah, you kind of have to. Yeah, their own show, not their act. I'm not talking about their act. No, no, yeah, like a sitcom. How many actors do you know that can write their own monologues and then write their own television show and do 25 episodes a year for eight years? Because like I said, I know a lot of comedians and movies and then direct movies. And then, you know, it's like comedians can do a lot of stuff. It's incredible, actually. And it seems like the kind of thing that you would not get good at for a really long time when you start. Yeah, it's like incredibly trying. There are people that are good immediately. I think Chappelle was good immediately when he was like 14. He started. Jeez. I've heard Schumer was good immediately. I've heard like there there are people that are good immediately. But yeah, you it takes a long time to get good at. And that's the thing is that there's really no shortcut. You can be good looking, whatever. But if you don't have good jokes, ultimately, the thing about stand up is in comedy in general, Whoever writes the most good jokes is the most successful, period. Meritocracy. Complete meritocracy. You know who's written the most good jokes? Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Louis C.K., Bill Burr, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Jerry Seinfeld. Like, these are not... Like who? Wait, yeah, uh, who's exactly. that? This is the hall you get to... It's like basketball or it's sports. It's like whoever has the most home runs is Babe Ruth. When you hit 750 home runs, you get to be Babe Ruth. And stand-up's the same way. It's like... Whoever writes the most good jokes is the winner. We talked earlier about trying to achieve things or trying to get good at something in order to make yourself feel better because you, you struggled with depression for a while. I mean, do you still, still do? Yeah. Still do? There's a lot of people that, that are obviously in the same boat. A lot of people write in as well looking to apply what they learn on the show to issues like depression, other types of sadness and things like that. And what advice do you have for people who are thinking, holy crap, this is me. I'm trying to achieve stuff or get ahead or do something great in order to overcome depression. I overachieve in order to make up for something I'm lacking elsewhere in my life. I mean, that's something you've that's dealt with. That's what it lot. is. That's what achievement is. I mean, I think like all achievement comes from feeling of deficiency. I think there are some exceptional people who are like, I, my father and mother told me I was great and it turns out I'm great. Like, yeah, they were right. Yeah. Again, there are rare instances, but most of it comes from a feeling of deficiency. And this has just happened for me recently where I finally feel like I've achieved enough shit in my life that the voices in my head have lost credibility. Like the negative voices. It's like you couldn't do it without Dave. You didn't. And then I'd done enough stuff in my life where it's like, OK, I've written for so many TV shows and done it well. I've have a stand-up specials that are well-received. I've done enough shit at this point that's like, all right, voice in my head. Like, you're just wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. But it took 25 years. And it may go away, too. That's the other thing. It's like, this could be a result of... A part of me thinks it's like these things that I finally achieved and finally, like, three mics being really well-received and me finally going like, hey, give yourself a break, kid. Or it could just be because I started taking Zoloft again five months ago. I don't know. That's interesting because it almost, to me, as an outsider, sounds like that's just the voice in your head telling you, don't get too comfortable because we might pull the rug out. Yeah, from there is that. But like, it's also, all right, there's too much evidence at this point. It's, there's too much evidence that I'm good at my job. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not arguing against that. Yeah, I, no, I, I know you not. Yeah. I just meant the voice in your head telling you not to get too cozy because, you know, you're worried about that. It, the it other could thing go I away. found, though, is that there's no real happiness in it. Like I read a Prince quote recently that I've been telling a lot of people, which is somebody was telling him like, write more songs, write it. Why don't you write another hit? And Prince looked at them and said, look, I've been to the mountaintop. There's nothing there. Like I've achieved a lot of shit. Any happiness I have or a, a good portion of the happiness I have is from meditation and from my own outlook on what life should be. 
because I've done a bunch of stuff and it's like, meh, it's pretty cool to like do a Netflix special that people like and it's pretty cool to do a TV show. Again, you hear this all the time, which is happiness is a choice. And I've become more aware of that in the last six months than ever in my life. It really is just a matter of like, I can look for external validation, but ultimately it's just got to come down to like, do I want to be happy or not? There are things I can do to make myself happy in a way that's not outcome based. There's a term, unconditional happiness. I'm not going to be happy if I'm just going to be happy. You know, that's what I focused more on in the last few months. And that's been working out really well yeah, so far. Yeah, it has. I'm sure you're listening and be like, you don't sound happy it's just because I'm fighting a cold. And I don't know how to parse out what's the approval I've been getting and what's the medication and what's the new outlook. But I meditate every day and I do CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like a there's a list of 10 negative thought styles, which just Google it. It's really excellent. And I've been more aware of those thinking styles and trying to play defense against it in myself. So as a result, as much as it is like working the art of charm will make you a more effective communicator, but who gives a shit? If you don't feel happy. If you, yeah, it's like to what end? Like I've done a ton of shit. Like I said, I have a good resume. It wasn't necessarily making me happy until I realized like this resume shit doesn't make a difference. You know, like I went on vacation with my girlfriend. I'm single now, but we went on vacation and to like Bali and we were doing nothing. And she's like, you're so happy. And I was like, I love not doing shit like this makes me happy. And figuring out that like, all right, go to do that. Do more of nothing. Like I didn't do shit yesterday. <laughs> it was fucking great. I didn't do fucking jack shit. And it was fantastic. I'm lucky in that I don't have to work all the time. But there's something to like, what makes you happy? I like playing video games sometimes. Fuck it. Play a video game. Like, do the thing that makes you happy. There's such a premium put on achievement. I'm just saying, as someone who's done a lot of this stuff and is successful, the next chapter is what makes me truly happy and what kind of life am I going to lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. You tried a ton of stuff to get rid of the depression. I mean, ketamine Mm -hmm. and then TMS, which is like brain magnetic stimulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like stuff that goes beyond the Zoloft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try fucking anything. Like, I've tried everything, including achievement, (laughs) like as a thing. Which is harder than ketamine. 
yeah, I've tried everything. And it just has to come to a point where you go, all right, it's not outside of me. It's just not outside of me. It's not about like making contacts and following up and sending out emails. It's like, yeah, that's fine. It's not that meaningful. I can work on Saturday Night Live or I can work on Chappelle Show or I can do a Netflix special. If I don't like it, if I'm not happy doing it, fuck it. What's the point? So I can say I did it. I have enough shit I can say I did. It's such a tempting trap for people, though, man. It's not even a tempting trap. It's our whole society. It's not even a trap. It's I mean, it is a trap, but the whole thing is a trap. It's all a trap. Yeah. Like, and I'm not trying to get too like, you know, matrixy, but it is like <laughs> philosophical. Yeah. It's like it is truly is all a trap. It's like people have ambition and don't even know why they have it. It's like, where is it coming from? What's the point? It's like approval seeking behavior at that point. Yeah, like, yeah. and it's just a habit. It's a habit that's like, do you like it? Do you really like it? Do you feel fulfilled by it? If you do, great. Chances are you're full of shit or it doesn't actually fulfill you. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that we used to do, that I used to do personally, especially in this business early on, was just like, it's got to be big. We have to have like a good social media following and all this stuff and people have to really understand our mission. And then when I kind of decided that that was less important than just having conversations with people mm -hmm. that I found interesting. Yeah. The show freaking just took off from there. Yeah. It That's just took because off. Because it was like, what do I actually like? I like interesting shit. That's part of what was good about Three Mics. It's like, well, who am I actually? Because there's a lot of comedians that are on stage and they're, that's not you. That's not who you are. This was the thing about Three Mics. It's like, this is who I actually am. I don't have all the charisma and charm that a lot of my peers have. And three mics was in some way explaining why I don't. You know what I mean? And going, yeah, like, I do. Because yeah. I have fucking clinical depression and I had a weird childhood. I've been doing all this stuff. Here's my story. There are people now that they know the story will like me forever. It's not because when I walk into a room, people want to say yes before they know what the question is, which is I've heard that's the definition of oh, charm. Yeah, yeah. And it's not because of that. It's because. I'm honest and I'm relatable as a result. You kind of nailed the whole concept behind the show, which is like authenticity in the face of just whatever sort of is going on up here. Yeah. Because that I feel like, and I know, is much more interesting and attractive and relatable to other people. You can't have friends if they don't know the real yeah. person inside. Yeah. But a lot of people are afraid to show that because they're busy covering it up with a mask of like, look how freaking cool yeah. I am and accomplished I am. Yeah. That's the antithesis of what we're doing here. We're trying to show people that like, look, all the crap that you think makes you not as palatable as you would like yeah. is the stuff that makes you real and therefore is the stuff that you should actually probably right. well, that's In my case, it was like, I took an acting class probably seven years ago and, and I would do scenes and the acting teacher was like, you're not being real. You're not. And I was like, dude, I'm such a sad person. You don't want to see it. <laughs> And then yeah. he was like, no, you have to do it. And I did it. And it was like, oh. And that was the first time people were like, dude, you're really good. And I was like, oh, okay. It's like Republicans do it a lot politically where they'll go like, they'll say, what's our weakness? And they'll make it a strength. Um, oh, right. My, my week, it's like a job interview. My weakness is I'm just too detail yeah, exactly. oriented. I think it's more like, was John Kerry a war hero or was he a coward? You know what I mean? Like, you think he's so great, it's actually, the, you've got it 100% wrong. It's like, is Neil too sad? Let me show you, like, way more of, Three Mics is like a stylistically, I do it in an artful way. I'm not just like, hmm, you know, like, I try to, I explain it in a way, yeah. I explain it in a way that's like, you can understand it, and it's helpful to people. But I'm not saying, like, you just got to be honest all the time. I just think that there are things that people keep secret that are unnecessary. I think what I found is everyone's got a thing. And whereas I just went first and then everyone comes out and it's like, I'm depressed. I have a bad thing with my dad. So everyone's got a thing. And it's like when people apologize on dates where they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm being so serious. I'm like, I don't, this is all I want to talk about. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't need to hear about all the great things that are going on in your Instagram feed. Yeah. I don't care what move. I don't care that you can quote Anchorman. Like, I don't give a shit. But I think that it is about like, what do you actually find enjoyable? And then doing that. And being yourself unapologetically. You said that you did a lot of honest writing when you were in a 12-step program. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Is that something we can apply at all? I think it's just that thing I said about brutal clarity. It's the depression thing. In some ways, the three mics is like, is the M&M &M 
thing at the end of eight mile, which is like, I am white. I am a fucking bum. What are you going to say about me? Like literally what's the meanest thing you can say about me? I'm a star fucker. Okay. Guess what I'm doing a monologue about? <laughs> I'm a star fucker. Here's why. Makes sense now that you hear it, doesn't it? Like, because I have no self-esteem, I was fucking chasing celebrities around. It's like, what's the worst thing people can say about you? The reason I said it in public is the thing that I, this is going to sound crazy, but I read it in Mystery's book. <laughs> really? It's the thing in Mystery's book. It says, if you're going out to pick up girls, give your buddy $300 and say, give me $100 back every girl I try to talk to. Right. So this was I would do that with stand up. I would give somebody 300 bucks and say every time I smile for more than five seconds, give me 80 bucks, whatever. Give me my money back. First time I did it, I lost two hundred twenty dollars. <laughs> but this was my way of saying like, OK, by calling myself a star fucker in public makes it way more embarrassing to do it for me. I can't do it anymore. Like I can't in good conscience, having called myself this in public. It's like where people will post their exercise results online. It's a bit of that where it's like I'm making myself accountable. So if people see me with a famous person, they're going to be a little disappointed. Like, motherfucker, I thought you weren't hiding anymore. Oh, you know, and yeah. that's what I kind of am doing. Like, that's kind of what I was doing. And that's being brutally honest with yourself and figuring out a way to make yourself stop doing it. How do you stay motivated to start again? And this might not be the right terminology, so pardon me, but at the quote unquote bottom, I mean, you're doing open mic stuff mm -hmm. or you were doing open mic stuff. Yeah. You already sort of touched the brass ring with the Chappelle show. Yeah. How do you stay motivated? Because I think a lot of people, when they heard I was interviewing you, they're like, oh yeah, he's bouncing back. Like that must be tough. And yeah. I thought, yeah, maybe he doesn't look at it like that or maybe he does. Everything you do is starting at the scratch. I mean, as a comedy writer, writing is so fucking hard that like it's all starting from scratch. So like from the maker of blank doesn't really get people in the seats. It does yeah, a little point. bit, but not really like especially now that there's so much media saturation. I see it all as like starting from the bottom. I think when you write a movie or direct a movie, it's hard for everyone. It's literally even being movie stars. No one gets everything they want. There's always someone who's better than you. For a long time, it was Will Smith, and then now he's kind of seems to have lost something. So they go, Kevin Hart. Well, Kevin, oh, yeah. Kevin will do it, or whatever. There's, and even when it was Will, there was a, movies that Denzel Washington would get that he couldn't get. Like there was always somebody in showbiz. You have to do it every day. It is that's how it's like sports. It's like they don't when Bron plays, they don't automatically give him thirty points. <laughs> yeah, good point. He has to score every game, and it's people might play shittier defense against him, but mostly it's because he's bigger and faster than them. Yeah. I'd see it as bouncing, whatever you want to call it, but because I did Chappelle show, people are not predisposed to like something else I do if they don't like it. Because your friend recommended it, you gave me more time, but like everyone's defensive about everything. You don't really get the benefit of the doubt for the most part. So you shouldn't play like you have it. No. The best example of this I can think of is I talked to Eddie Murphy one time about when he was on Saturday Night Live and I said, did you just feel like you were dominating and like you were just killing and you had the minus touch? And he's like, no, man, it was week to week. I just was trying to survive. And you think about all the shit he did, but he was like, I was just trying to get sketches on. Yeah. And that's life in showbiz for sure. I think the way the world is now, I think everything is like so market based. No one's going to give you money for nothing, like for the most part, other than, of course, voiceover. Yeah, I was um, going to say, yeah. Which is the easiest money There's some of that. ever make. But, you do a bunch of that, huh? Uh, yeah, I did a bunch of stuff for um for Samsung like two years ago, for like a year and a half. It was the best. I did Grand Theft Auto 4 and 3. What'd you do? Uh, bad guys. Great. Like, like Russians and, you know, explosion. Guys who are involved in the character's life. Of course, a lot of those little side gig guys where it's like a radio DJ yeah. or nerd and then like <clears throat> a million pedestrians. Great. Because they just wanted to knock those guys yeah. out and you're already in there. Can you do an Indian accent? And I'm like, not really. And they're like, just try, try it. Just try one. It yeah. doesn't have to be real. Yeah. So you just do this like really racist Indian yeah. accent. And they're like, nailed it. Yeah. Next. Yeah. That is kind of free money. I remember getting like $445 for like an hour of work. Yeah. And I thought I was going to get like a t-shirt or yeah. something. And I was like, sign me up for every video game ever. And then I sucked at like all of it. Yeah, the you're games. also not going to get free money for long. Like no. if you'd suck, you wouldn't have gotten it again. I did a couple other ones, but man, doing like 
aliens and stuff, it's so much harder than people think. Like, you think you have an awesome character, they want that, but 10% in a different way, and you just can't do it. Like, yeah. unless you're an actor, Absolutely. you just can't do it. You had a great quote where you summarized a little bit of this. You said, I'm never gonna be more successful than I've been in the past two years. I have a better chance of being eaten by a shark. Yeah. I'll never be famous, but I've got financial success. People in showbiz seem to want to work with me, and I get to control the stuff I write. Fame gives you noise, which is freaking worthless. I've got a girlfriend I love, so I can't use it to get women, and it's not like Dave and I got laid because of Chappelle's show. He was married, and I'm pale. Yeah. What do you mean by fame gives you a lot of noise? I think that's a brilliant observation. What I've found with, like, the small amount of fame that I have in the last month or whatever, I've always said, like, I always say I'm famous like an NBA referee where people are like, where do I know you from? Um, Mm. It can get you laid for sure. But I think for the most part, it's just like if getting recognized is mostly an exercise in calming the person down. When someone recognizes you, they just start acting crazy and like, dude, I just got to say, dude, I can't believe you're here. Can we? And you have to just be like, yeah, man, it's cool. Yes. I'll love to take a picture with you. Yeah. OK, great. Here we go. Here we're going to take a picture. Really nice to meet you. They're having a freak out and you almost have to like give them CPR (laughs) in the middle of the grove. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just have to like give them a little massage. (laughs) Like it's going to be fine. Fame will get you a lot of people acting weird around you. Yeah. Yeah. That's mostly what it gives you. And then you might pick up like a good like voiceover gig. You can advertise like you can promote like liquor. Right. Yeah. Or you get like free Twizzlers at the movie yeah, you theater because they're yeah, like, not even. Yeah. I mean, love you, that sometimes, Netflix. Yeah. Sometimes you get free shit, but mostly it's like it's valuable for attracting for men to attract women. Really shallow w- women that you just yeah, want. Or, you know, it's it just makes it easier, even if they're not shallow. It makes yeah. It yeah. I suppose that's true. That would have to have. It's just a social value. Yeah. You're high status. Yeah. It, but it's also really ephemeral, like you're high status now. But yeah, like then when you stop being high status, people look at you like, uh, oh, poor thing. Yeah. Like people oh, remember feel, when you were famous. Yeah, yeah, oh, people man. feel bad for you and they kind of are shittier to you. Yeah. Like, how you doing? And you're yeah. like, I'm fine. Thanks for treating me like somebody just yeah. died close to me. I've been fine for years. Yes, like, I'm good. Exactly. People think they act normal around celebrities. No one like, acts normal. No, it's like being around cops. You're yeah. Like, I'm driving yeah. the speed limit. See, I'm a normal driver. Yeah. Look at me drive. <laughs> Man, you've been really generous with your time. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. There's a couple questions from listeners of the show that I feel compelled to ask you since you're sitting here. Do you have pre-show rituals? A lot of comics have things they have to no, do. I have none. None? No. I usually have to have like two mugs of tea and to be honest, if you weren't here I'd, and we weren't doing this like in video, I'd have something probably to take a leak in just in case. Really? Yeah. Are we on video? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, no, but you're here. I'm not going to like pee in oh, right. a bottle yeah, in front yeah. of you. That would be a weird thing to do around anyone, let yeah. alone. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, you're Thanks welcome. for not doing that. <laughs> would you ever work with Dave again? I work with him on Silent Line. Oh, you do? Yeah. But like on a project, I guess, with just you and him? I don't think it's even going to be an issue. You're not, not going to have that ever happen? No. No. And if I did, I would get the money up front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make sure it's in the bank. Yeah. I love the comedy. You're one of my new favorites now. I don't right, say that you. to everybody that comes yeah. in. I know you're probably thinking like, yeah, right. Because a lot of people are no, like, sure, yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, no, I understand that people are now seeing me for the first time. So I'm yeah. that. I dig it. And I think, I honestly think Women and Black Dudes, your first, yeah. is it album? Is that yeah. what they're called? Uh, it was an hour on Comedy Central. It's an album. It is really, really funny. Like I told you before, when we walked in, I was at a coffee shop and people were looking at me like, I hope that he's wearing headphones. Yeah. Otherwise we have to call the police. Yeah. And I don't normally laugh out loud to comedy because a lot of it's just not that funny. Yeah. Uh, even TV. No, so I appreciate it, man. We'll link to Women and Black Dudes in the show notes. We'll obviously link to, can you link to things on Netflix? Yeah, you can. Okay, so we'll link to that in the show notes, the new one. What's next for you, man? What's going on? Uh, I'm doing a couple pilots and just, you know, I'm around. And in the credits, it'll be like, from the creator of, and everyone will exactly. go, I don't care. People go, I don't, that means nothing to me. Yeah, from Neil Brennan. Mm, that sounds familiar. Where do I know mm. that? Yeah, it'll have yeah. to be the three mics guy. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, bro. Great big thank you to Neil Brennan. His special is called Three Mics, and that is, of course, in Netflix. We'll link that in the show notes. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Neil on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. I'd love for you to tweet at me your number one takeaway from Neil Brennan. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And remember, if you want to see the show notes, you can tap your phone screen and most mobile podcast players. They should pop right up. 
Our boot camps, our live programs here in L.A., details for those are at theartofcharm.com slash boot camp. Guys coming from all over the world. Super rewarding. I love seeing how far this takes people. What they do in the months and years after boot camp is nothing short of amazing. And remember, we sell out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or if you're in your car right now, at a red light, you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. That includes some great practical stuff on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It's designed to make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text the word charmed to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.